Our scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, who, from, for from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, make us to receive your holy word this morning. Help us know what we do not yet know. Help us love what we fail to love and put our hands to the plow where we have yet to obey. Father, for your glory and our good. Amen. You may be seated. Here's Christmas sermon number two uh, in January. Amen. First thing I want to, uh, to address as we walk into chapter two is the entourage and your goofy and accurate nativity scene. Where in the Bible, let me ask you, do you see just three wise men? Certainly there's three gifts, but where do you see just three wise men? Maybe even more pertinent, Where do you see any mention of kings attending the birth of Christ? We three kings of Orient are, right? Where do you see that at? It's not in the scriptures. Certainly wise men are mentioned, or the magi are mentioned, but not kings. In fact, the only king that's mentioned is the one who wants to kill Jesus. I also want you to think through something else with me. How did three wise men come to Jerusalem, if indeed there were three, come into Jerusalem and arrest the attention of Herod and all of Jerusalem? How would three wise men garner that kind of attention? I mean, think about, if you understand any of the context of this moment, Jerusalem would have been one of the busiest cities in the Middle East. 
What was happening? Think about this. Why was Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem? For a census, right? Were they the only ones traveling for a census? Matter of fact, Jerusalem would have been still like the, the headquarters, if you will, of the tribe of Judah, which is the largest tribe. So how many people would have been coming back to Jerusalem for the census? I mean, Jerusalem would have been uh, busy, a bustling city at this time. People would have been all over the place. Lots of people would have been coming home to Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem at this time, the population would have been estimated close to 80,000 people. Not to mention the fact that people would return to Israel or to Jerusalem particularly, much like even today, for rituals and practices and uh, holidays and, and so on and so forth. So I ask you again the question, do you think the king would notice three wise men entering the city? No, I don't think they would have. Now who knows how many, but there would have been plenty enough to garner the attention of Herod and all of Jerusalem. In fact, look at the text again, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, all Jerusalem with him. It got the attention of Herod and all Jerusalem. Their presence elicited the response of all. It got everyone's attention. In fact, I think that is Matthew's point here. You say, well, what's it matter whether there was three or there was 30? I think that's Matthew's point. Matthew wants us to read this moment as a sort of micro-representation of the world responding to Jesus. A microcosm, if you will, of, of responses to Christ, that this is, that everyone in the world is going to fall to some measure in these four major categories of response to Christ and his birth. He is drawing every person in the context into the picture he is painting. You have the king, you have the wise people from afar, you have the religious leaders present, the scribes and the chief priests. And you have the city of Jerusalem. Matthew's point, you have the leadership of the pagan world. You have the leadership of the people of God. You have the wise pagans from outside of Jerusalem. And you have the entire city of Jerusalem itself. His point is that he wants us to see all the people of the world will indeed respond to Christ in some way and some fashion. Though Matthew isn't going to cover every possible response, he covers four major responses to Christ. Some good, some bad. Every person has, in this moment, a response to Christ. Certainly in an ultimate sense, in an eternal sense, have you responded in receiving the gift of salvation and redemption through Christ or responded in rejecting. 
But then you also have the more moment-by-moment responses, which will largely be applicable for many of us. Some respond to Christ in anger. I'm going to be the boss, we say. Some of us respond in apathy. I'm good. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Some of us respond to Christ in anxiety, worry. And some of us respond in adoration, belief, and humble worship. So my question for you this morning is, how do you respond to Christ? Certainly, different moments of different days will look quite different. But how do you respond to Christ? That's our question. When faced with Christ, the King, in His kingdom, what's your response? I mean, that's, again, that's the picture that Matthew's painting here. You have Christ has now entered into our world, or what seemed to be our world. He has begun to establish his kingdom as the king. And Matthew records these responses to that scenario. So Christ is the king in his kingdom yet today. So how do you and I respond To the king and his kingdom. When faced with that, what's your response? When, for example, when Christ says, Only my righteousness is sufficient, how do you respond? In anger, because you want your righteousness to be sufficient? Are you apathetic? Does that make no difference to you? Does it not change your actions, change your thoughts, change your emotions? Are you apathetic? When he says, my righteousness is sufficient and only it will do. Or when he says that only the meek shall inherit the kingdom. How do we respond to a statement like that? How do you respond? When he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. How do you respond? I mean, I could list a million different things that Christ has said or implied and then ask the question, how do you respond? How did you respond to Jesus yesterday? How about this morning? Or maybe even right now. Don't miss this as well. A non-response is still a response. It's just called apathy. So let's survey the four broad responses that we see in this passage. First is this, don't be like Herod. Anger. The response of anger And don't be like Herod. So the magi, or the wise men, come into town and are asking around. Here's here's the picture, right? Where's Jesus? Where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? This entourage, so large, Herod hears of it, and Matthew says, Herod is troubled. The king is troubled. Herod says, where is the Christ? So what happens is, at this point, Herod assembles for them the chief priests, the scribes. This has been the religious leaders of the Jews at this time. But notice the language change. The wise men in Herod, as they come into the city, that this is what he gets wind of. They're asking, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? But Herod says, where is the Christ? He doesn't respond with the same phrase. 
He responds with, where is the Christ? Why? Because Herod is saying, I'm the king. I will continue to be the king. This is important. You'll see why in a bit. Next, notice Herod's progression. Herod begins with being troubled, the passage says. But what comes after this? Herod intends to have every male child murdered. Herod's anxiety quickly turns to anger, to wrath. I will put all of them down. He says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? Herod does not intend in this moment to go worship Jesus and then change his mind two verses, you know, five verses later. He's being deceitful and snarky and, and trying to hide his motives. Herod has no intention of worshiping this child. Now, why is Herod so angry, though? Why would the king be so mad? Well, again, that's, that's why Matthew gives us this clue here. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is the king of the Jews? And he says, well, where is the Christ? It's because even though Herod did not believe in God as Lord, he was the king. Indeed, in his view, he was the king of the Jews. And the prophecy said that there would be a new king coming. Indeed, he responds by wanting to kill the potential new king. What any king would have done, any pagan evil king would have done at this moment. If there's a threat to my kingdom and my kingship, then I will put an end to it. Herod is functionally saying, I will not submit to anyone else's authority. I will only submit to my own. He has said, it will be my way and only my way. And now he's saying, I'm literally going to kill anyone who might threaten my power. Now, we likely today don't know of any leader who has said, I want to kill that person who is a threat to my leadership. I'm sure there's no public recording of Biden saying this. Of course, no one actually believes Epstein committed suicide. Also notice Herod's foolish goals at this moment. He thinks he can thwart God's plan to establish the king of the universe, and he thinks he can put an end to that by issuing this decree to murder all of those two and below. He thinks that if God has sent his long-foretold son to be the king of the Jews, to be the shepherd of his people, like that's the prophecy he just heard, he thinks he can somehow put an end to this, that he can stop the plan. So you have Herod angry at the threat of his rulership who is trying to enact this incredibly foolish plan. At the heart of it, Herod is saying, 
there will be no other ruler in my kingdom other than me. I mean, you and I see this all the time. We see this around us all the time. It may not look like a decree to go murder people. Has anybody ever heard the phrase, you can't tell me what to do? You can't tell me who I can identify as. You can't tell me how I can act here. You can't tell me whether or not I can be a fluffy. There will be no one or nothing that tells me what to do. I am the boss. Abortion. I, woman, am the boss. Feminism. For majority of the movement, it isn't about equality. It's about women being the boss. The government, it isn't about giving people a voice. For most of them, it's about staying in power. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. It absolutely cannot be about what's best for people. In all of these situations, you have pagans following the footsteps of Herod, where, where it is, there will be no threat to my rulership. The reality is the only the redeemed can truly lead to what is good. Everyone else is on a power trip just like Herod. Now, here's the reality, though. The, the, the way of Herod that we see in our world around us, that we see in things like feminism or abortion or the government, those, that, that characteristic is alive and well in us. As, uh, it, that characteristic is alive and well in us, too. Why do you think majority of us get cross when someone challenges something we say or do or we did or we said. No one's going to threaten my rulership. How dare you challenge me? And maybe you don't say anything. Maybe you're quiet. Maybe you even put on a smile. But why does your heart automatically get... Or why do you automatically start justifying... Well, but I did it because of this, and I did it because of that, or no one understands me, or no one knows the trauma I've had, and blah, blah, blah. No one is going to tell me what to do. We do the same. Let me ask you this practical question. We'll, we'll, we'll just put some gasoline on the fire. How many of you would truly submit to the elders if they advised you not to do something? Even just a wisdom decision. Just put a little bit of, put a little bit of gasoline on there. I, let me give you Some of you know who Rosaria Butterfield is. Wonderful. Wonderful woman of God. Early on, as, as she released, uh, uh, you know, the gospel comes with a house key and starts hitting the scene, becoming pretty popular, she was told by her elders, or her session as she calls them, which includes her husband, that she couldn't be a part of TGC or Christianity Today, or the Gospel Coalition or Christianity Today. Why? Well, because they foresaw that the direction these things were headed was not going to be good. And she, though, 
she's incre- like beginning to increase in popularity and could have had all the fame and all that. She listens to them. And thank God she did, considering where some of these things are at today, especially Christianity today. It's not really Christian today. It's, anyways, that's a side thought. But how many of us would truly submit to the elders if they advised us not to do something? This is especially tempting for us men. The reality is it's usually easier, just of observation, it's usually easier for women to submit to their elders because they've already gotten good at practicing submission to you, husbands. That was supposed to be a joke. Well, not a joke. It was still a slap in the face. I meant it, but it was meant to be funny. It's especially tempting for us as men to say, no, I will be king. No, I will do it my way. Kids, do you submit to your parents or do you get angry? You get angry when they're a threat to you getting to do what you want to do. Maybe you don't set out to uh, murder your parents. But you say in your mind, but I want to do it my way. Maybe you just get bitter, frustrated, angry with them. Maybe you throw a tantrum. And listen, kids, that tantrum can look different ways. And your parents throw tantrums too, trust me. I've had them in my office throwing a tantrum. Your tantrums could look like, kids, like a sour face and an attitude the rest of the day. Your tantrum could look like the silent treatment, where you go radio silence for a time. Your tantrum could look like a two-year-old dropping to the floor, screaming and kicking. So kids, do you submit to your parents, or do you say, there will be no threat to my rulership? Wives, how about submitting to your husbands? I could go on there. Our murder looks a little more subtle, though. You and I don't usually set out like Herod and devise a scheme to have the Christ child brought to us so that, so that we can, you know, quote-unquote, worship him and, and then set out to murder the rest of the threat or any potential threat. Maybe we don't make a decree to kill the person who threatens our rulership, but what we can't do with our hands, we oftentimes do with our minds and our emotions. Here's a real practical example. I've seen it a million times, all right? Your elders will say something that convicts you. Instead of humbly receiving it, what we do is we send out little people in our minds to go get rid of them. Though you don't actually put a knife to someone's heart, what we do is we go on a hunt to nitpick anything wrong we can find in their life. Well, he's too mean, or his parenting doesn't add up, or look at the way he dresses, I don't like his tone of voice, or we get really pious, and we come up with a doctrine that we disagree with them that has absolutely nothing to do with the thing they said that convicts you. But somehow, if you can crucify him over this doctrine over here, then I don't have to listen to him on this thing that has nothing to do with the other. 
it somehow lightens the threat to your rulership. Listen, we do this not just with the elders, we do this with our spouse. Our spouse brings something from God's word that we need to heed. Well, I know how you treated the kids last week. And she's talking to you about finances and how you should spend money wisely. And somehow it makes you feel better about what she said about your finances and your mismanagement of money because of her parenting last week. Like, we, we, we murder them in our mind and in our emotions so that we don't have to listen. We live in anger. There will be no threat to our rulership. So our anger may not result in a physical murdering, but instead a modern-day slaughtering of that person in our own head so that we can justify no listening so that we can get away from the threat to our rulership. And our foolish, goal, our foolish goals, we think that somehow we can alleviate the threat to our rulership by undermining God's plan and God's established leadership in our lives. What foolishness it is. Herod was a fool. Next, don't be like the chief priests and scribes. Apathetic. Don't be like the chief priests and scribes. They're apathetic. Notice what happens. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, meaning Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so Herod has come. He's got what's going on. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of God's people, they inform Herod. Here's what's happening. There's this king coming. It's written by a prophet of old. You, O Bethlehem, this is where the king's... So he tells Herod the town where the king's coming. He will be a ruler, and he will shepherd my people. You see, the, the chief priests, the scribes, they knew the scriptures. They went to church when the doors were open. They had the right answers. They knew the secret handshakes. They even tithed. They had knowledge. They knew what to say. They knew when to say it and when not to say it. Now we get a pretty informed picture of what the other three groups do in this passage. You see the anger of Herod, and he sets out to kill Jesus. You see the troubledness of the city. You see the movement of the wise men, and we'll get there in a minute. But what is left out? What's left out? What does Matthew leave out at this moment? The chief priests and the scribes. What do they do? Well, I think that's Matthew's point, is that they do nothing. They do nothing. Now, before you say, Matt, you're making some leaps, let me ask you this question. 
Do we have any accounts in the Gospels of the Jewish leaders visiting the birth of Christ? Is it there? You have the three wise men, you have the shepherds, you have the high priests and the scribes, right? They're not there. I mean, don't you think that would get recorded? I mean, think about the picture here. An entourage of wise men come, so much so that it gets the attention of Herod and the entire city of Jerusalem. What an amazing sight. Why are all these people visiting us? Oh, it's because the scriptures. This is Herod. I'm pretending to be Herod. Oh, it's the scriptures. It's because the scriptures prophesied that in the land of Judah, in a tiny town called Bethlehem, there would be a ruler who will come shepherd the people of God. That's why, Herod, the high priests say, and yet they don't go visit to Christ. They don't go see. They knew the prophecy so much so that they were able to inform Herod of what was happening. They knew the ruckus of the wise men. They knew when to stand, when to sit down. They knew which home group to go to, and they had every hymn number memorized. And they did nothing. They had all the knowledge, more than anyone else in the room, and yet they did nothing. They were apathetic. And here's the reality for us it is really easy for us to be content in knowledge. It's really easy for us to be content in knowledge. They were content in knowing and yet doing nothing. It's easy for us to fill our minds and yet do nothing with it. Especially in our knowledge overload world or in our consuming content age. Just a little knowledge can quench the thirst for actually doing something. Now, before you intellectuals try to beat me to the punch, yes, acquiring knowledge is doing something itself. But you know what I mean here. You're smart enough. Think about it. We're all created with the desire to produce, to make something, to put our hands to the plow. We know this from Genesis and beyond. And if you're a Christian, you've been recreated with the desire to obey the Lord in all of those such things. And those things take effort. Well, in the game of effort, you have to put forth effort to have knowledge, right? You have to put forth effort to understand something. You have to uh, put forth effort to know what happens. Your God-given desire to progress gets satisfied just enough by the effort you put forth into knowing such that you don't actually do anything with what you know. That it oftentimes makes absolutely no difference. It makes no actual change in your life. The hand never actually gets to the plow. You're content in just knowing instead of doing 
And so you go back to bed and do it all over again. Instead of moving on to the next real-life challenge, you just move on to the next intellectual stimulus. Instead of taking the next risk requiring courage, you bury yourself in the next research project. Instead of making the necessary changes in your home, you just listen to the next podcast. Instead of actually following Jesus this week, you just do your own thing until next Sunday comes and you have your head tickled again. Apathy. Content and just knowing and not actually doing anything with it. Why? Because it feels like you've accomplished something. Because in some sense, you have. But not all that God intends for us to accomplish with what he has given us to know. The chief priests and scribes were content in just knowing that they sat and did nothing. It's really easy to be apathetic by becoming content with what we know. Now, just to make sure I'm swinging both directions here, there's a couple different apathetic groups I have in mind here. One is the, those who are apathetic and lost, meaning not redeemed. You know all the right answers about salvation, but it's only knowledge. You grew up in the church. You could even teach the gospel to any other pagan around you. Listen, my wife can probably tell you off the top of her head the price of most items that she buys regularly at Aldi's. And she's getting up and leaving right now. <laughs> Just because she knows the price of that food does not mean that food is in our, is in our kitchen and being ready to eat, does it? Mm-mm. So just because you can recite the aspects and the components of the gospel does not mean that you're redeemed. It does not mean you're doing anything with it, that you are in faith responding to it. For you, I would give you a basic test. You've come here because of the entourage, the ruckus of Sunday mornings. You hear the word of God, many things which you probably already know. And my question to you is, what are you going to actually do with it? What are you going to do with it this afternoon? Will you be satisfied with just a little sliver? What will you do with it between now and home group, and between home group and the following Sunday? Or are you apathetic? Are you apathetic towards it? The other is the apathetic and saved. Some of us in here fancy ourselves as thinkers. But then we do little to nothing with what we actually say we know. Instead, oftentimes the temptation for those who would qualify themselves as a thinker is to use it to justify laziness. Like video games. Not that they are wrong. Don't, don't shoot me. I mean, some are. But they tend to create apathetic people. Why? 
because your desire to accomplish something gets scratched by the video game where at the end of the day you haven't actually done anything other than conquer that next Mario world. Now, some of us don't fancy ourselves intellectuals, so you think you're off the hook. That doesn't mean you're off the hook. It just means that it doesn't take as much knowledge to make you feel content and lazy. You can rewind that and listen to it again later. It's really easy for God's people to become apathetic. Some of it's because... because like, we can go into autopilot mode, right? Like, we hear the same thing over and over and over again. Don't, don't let the truths of God's words just rush in and out your ears. It's easy to become apathetic. Guard against apathy, dear Christian. Next, don't be like the people of Jerusalem, anxious, troubled. Don't be like the people of Jerusalem. So the news of the Christ has come, this ruler who will rule the people, shepherd God's people. It says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Is it back on? There we go. That's weird. And all Jerusalem with him was troubled. They were troubled. They were concerned. They were worried about what might come from the king of the Jews. What would change? What problems would it bring? I mean, I'm sure there was a million things going through their heads at this moment. We don't know. What we do know is that they were anxious. Now listen, some of you might perk up at this point. The idea of anxiety and mental issues are a sacred cow in our day today. But the people here had anxiety. They were worried. They were troubled. Now, I would define anxiety as a gripping concern or a worry that has taken the driver's seat of your life. It's not wrong to be concerned about a thing. I'm concerned about what my parenting might produce. I'm concerned about where our finances are at. I'm, con- like, I'm thoughtful about these things. But there's a difference between where that moment and when it crosses into, I'm now gripped by that concern. I'm now driven by that concern. That concern is in the driver's seat of my thoughts and my emotions, There's a grippingness to it, a gripping concern. Where does this worry come from, though? Where does the troubledness come from? Anxiety is really the prophesying of a future event that you would prefer not to happen. It's you thinking, this is going to happen, and I don't like that. So you worry. What's amazing is that you and I fancy ourselves a, a prophet in that moment, We fancy ourselves a fortune teller, and yet we don't stone that prophet when what he says doesn't come true. What happens is you look into the future and you predict 
For example, a financial situation that seems very challenging and difficult. You're concerned, but now the concern has you controlled, thinking of very little else but that situation, heart tightening when you think about it. Joy and trust in the Lord is waning or gone. It's the kind of picture we have here. When the people heard about this coming ruler, they were filled with anxiety. They were troubled. They were gripped. Remember, the picture is they're, they're gripped just like Herod. And how does Herod respond to the gripping concern by which he is troubled with in this moment? To murder Jesus, right? To murder Jesus. Jerusalem is gripped right along with him. They heard of Jesus and they were filled with trouble. One of the things I, you, you've got to understand, what Matthew is telling us ahead of time, right in this moment. He is, Matthew is foreshadowing in this moment with the troubledness of Jerusalem. He is telling us the future of Jesus. A Christ who, namely, who stirs up hostility. A Christ who arouses resentment. A Christ who brings upheaval and even suffering. A Christ who brings a sword and not peace. Matthew is foreshadowing that in this phrase when he says, the city of Jerusalem is troubled. They're anxious. Matthew's just giving us a future picture of all the people that will respond to Christ with anxiousness. I mean, listen, think about it. The dude is just a baby. And he's already not a respectable, quiet, peace-at-all-cost, tolerant evangelical. There was no open and affirming sign on his nativity. It reminds me of that Narnia quote. Where he says, Aslan says no, or where it says of Aslan, he isn't safe, but he's good. Is the baby in the manger safe? No, but he's good. We have this sanitized Jesus in a female cabbage patch doll. That's our picture of Jesus. And Matthew's telling us right here in chapter 2, that's not who Jesus is going to be. The baby in the manger has already got all of Jerusalem troubled. What are we going to do with him? And Herod, along with him, sets out to kill him. So I would ask you the question, me the question, where do you find yourself anxious at this king and his kingdom, and what he has said, and what he has done. Are you anxious because it could be a threat to your rulership? Are you anxious because it isn't the nice Jesus that you've grown up believing? What about the king's plans and his kingdom. 
Like when you look around, just look at your plans for this week. One of the things I tell my kids all the time when they don't like the way things are going or the way a situation happened, I ask them frequently, so you're upset because it didn't go your way. That's correct. Well, who always gets his way? God does. So who are you upset at? God getting his way. Does that make you anxious? If God gets his way this week and you don't get yours? Does that make your heart even tense right now? I'm trying to get it there. Then you have something to repent for in a moment. What I mean is your life is in his hands. And anytime we get anxious, it is likely because we are not trusting the Lord. Period. He will get his way child, if you're trying to trust your mom and dad when you don't understand why they're doing something, listen, God always gets his way. And he will work his way through your parents for your good. My last point for today, be like the Magi, adoration. Be like the Magi, not to be confused with MAGA, okay? Adoration. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you hear those words? Or did it just roll in one ear and out the other? When, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their bank accounts, they gave lots of gifts to Jesus. We're reminded here that God seeks sinners. That God seeks sinners. He saves sinners. And he uses whatever means are available to him. I understand the, the Magi would have been astronomers and astrologists, which, by the way, the latter one is evil. And yet God uses a star to get their attention and guides them to what is likely their salvation. He moves them from A to B to C to D so that they would find the Christ child so that they could adore him. And he leads them. He leads them to the place where Jesus is born. Let's not overlook the fact that it would have taken them great effort to get here. If they knew anything that Daniel had said, they knew that he had predicted with some specificity the birth of a royal deliverer in Israel. Have traversed or traveled for months and months. I mean, this would have been like no, no trip to Kroger, more like a trip to Walmart, dodging the pajamas and painted on yoga pants, only to find a single register open. 
It would have taken great effort. Great effort for them to get in, to move on to the next place. They would have brought many with them and traveled for months. By the time they got to Jesus, it would have been closer to two years old. That's why Herod has all of those at this age murdered. And when they finally arrived, it says that they fell down before him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. This past Christmas, we're just, we're just a few weeks away, right, from celebrating the birth of Christ. You should have rejoiced over and over again exceedingly with great joy. It says literally they were prostrate before him. I mean, think about this. A dignified magi laying down on a dirty floor before the Christ. See, they had knowledge of him. They were not apathetic. They had knowledge of him, but they were not anxious. They had knowledge of him, and they were not angry. They had knowledge of him that led to worship of him. It led to obedience. They don't miss this. They followed directions to the place at the beginning, like throughout the process, for months and months and months and months and months. Like, don't, don't just think, oh, cool, the Magi, they worship Jesus, they fell at this moment. Think about what led up to this moment. The star and following it over and over again. Of course, in this moment, they fall in, in reverence at the side of Jesus. The third example of their obedience is they put their money where their mouth was. And four, they were warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, and so they obeyed. So you have their obedience leading up to, their, their worship-driven obedience leading up to, their worship in the moment, and their worship obedience following. You know, they put their money where their mouth was. You know, a bottle of myrrh could cost as much as $10,000 in today's economy. It would have been a huge gift. Not to mention the other gifts. And not to mention, as I've argued, there would have been dozens of wise men. At least more than three. One interesting thought. Where do they go after this time? Where do Mary and Joseph go? Where do they flee to? Egypt. What was, what was Joseph? He was a carpenter, right? A carpenter moving to a foreign town where they were there for quite a while. What do you think funded their trip into Egypt? It would have been the gifts of the Magi. I think God was looking ahead to what they needed, to what Mary and Joseph would need, to care for them. These gifts would have been at least a large portion of funding their excursion and their hiding from Herod in Egypt. So let me ask you, do you put your resources where your mouth is? 
Do you put your resources where your mouth is? How do you spend God's time? And how do you spend God's money? Or are you apathetic in that place? Or are you indifferent? Or do you get angry and say, well, no, I'm going to spend it this way. I'll spend it on me, and we'll spend it this way. Or when someone challenges the way you spend God's money and time, do you get defensive and anxious about that? I mean, maybe the way you spend it is unwise, but you cloak it in some sort of spirituality. Or at least I've got good motives. You put your money where your mouth is. They came, they worshiped the Christ, they gave gifts. Let me ask you this last question. Does your life exude the delight of who we know and what we know of him? Is your life characterized by adoration? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Is your life delight and wow, God has been so kind to give the life of his son for mine. The, good, the other myriad of gifts that God has given us. Are you thankful for things and worship God for things that we know like his all-powerfulness, his, his electing grace, things like his all being all-wise and sovereign, and yet he loves you and loves me? Or do we respond in anger at the threat of another ruler Do we respond in anxiousness or do we respond in adoration? God's people can and should respond in adoration. You know the Christ. You know the Christ. Do you hear me? You know the Christ. All hail Christ. Why don't you stand with me? And I want to sing the doxology with you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.